Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Utopian Horizons, a podcast about utopias real and imaginary. This podcast is about Jeremy Corbyn, Corbynism, Corbynites, whatever other suffixes you might like to add to Corbyn's name. Um, it's a bit different in terms of stuff I've been doing on the podcast. Uh, I tend to be picking stuff out from the past, whether that be cultural artefacts like books or movies or whatever, or people that are long gone. Now, obviously, while the influences of those things may be continue to be felt and they may certainly still be relevant to, to today, and I think that's something that would have come out in the episodes, I thought it would be interesting to do something that's ongoing in a more concrete way. Utopia is not just about the past or past imaginings, it's very much about today and how people are trying to make society better, how, how people are trying to change things. So I thought it would be interesting to look at a political movement that has some kind of utopian dimension and talk about that, hence the episode on Corbyn. I'm conscious as well that some people might question why I'm framing Jeremy Corbyn and his the project that he's trying to undertake as Labour leader as a utopian one. When you think of utopia, you would tend to think of something more... Uh, more ambitious, more um, spectacular in terms of what it's trying to achieve. And when you compare it to, when you compare what Labour is proposing to other utopian imaginings, then certainly it kind of pales in comparison. It's not necessarily that radical. Uh, I do see that. Uh, I'm not going to try and address that now because I think the reason you might call Corbynism utopian and the degree to which it has a utopian dimension is something that I hope will come out of the conversation that I have with Abby Wilkinson, who is the guest on this episode. Abby is a journalist who writes for a number of places, places like The Guardian. Pretty sure I've seen her on The Independent, uh, a few other places as well. There were a lot of journalists who, in the lead up to the general election, essentially spent their time just mocking and dismissing Corbyn and the movement behind him, which, even if you're against Corbyn's politics, I think was a rather stupid thing to do because it left them rather ill-equipped to understand what was happening and to understand the new political context, and they're now struggling to respond to that. So... um, that was a strategic error, which is uh, very much welcome from my perspective on their part. Abby, um, probably because she, to some extent, shares Corbyn politics, was one of the few journalists who bothered to take Corbyn seriously and to analyse the analyze him and the movement behind him in a serious way so that makes her a really good person to have on for for this episode um before we get on to the conversation with abby um, i'm going to leave all the twitter and all that rubbish till the end so don't worry about that but i just really briefly want to say if you have been listening to this podcast and enjoying it or listen to this episode and enjoying it if you could take a moment to give this a rating a review or itunes whatever you use to listen to this that would be massively appreciated i've only got uh, like a few reviews on itunes and that doesn't reflect the amount of people that listen to this. I know there are a lot more people that listen to this than that. So just giving me a review, which would take a couple of minutes, would help me to grow this and make this bigger and better. So uh, I know it's annoying that I keep asking you to do it every episode. But uh, yeah, that's the one thing I'm going to ask today. If you could do that, that would be great. The one other thing I want to quite quickly address, I'm not really happy with like the frequency that I've been getting episodes out. Like, I mentioned that almost every time as well. Part of the reason for that is it's difficult. I mean, every episode takes a lot of time anyway, but one of the big things is like trying to find guests and then trying to work out when we've both got free time and then arranging to the interview and stuff. And sometimes things go wrong and we have to rearrange. So what I'm going to do is... I'm going to do a kind of mini series within Utopian Horizons, I suppose, on the novels of Philip K. Dick. And I'm going to be doing that by myself. So I don't have to worry about getting guests and I can just do that as and when. And that will hopefully help me to get some episodes out a bit more regularly. Now, I know Philip K. Dick pretty well, so I'm hoping it'll work, but I don't know. We'll see how it goes. It's something I'm going to try. Um, if you can give me some feedback, if it if it's good, then I'll keep on doing it. If it doesn't work, then I'll just stop, whatever. I'm going to be trying to do it roughly chronologically, but it's also going to depend on novels that I've already got, basically. So the first one that I'm going to do, if you happen to want to read the novel before that episode comes out, will be Time Out of Joint. So yeah, that'll be coming soon, and then... We'll just see how that goes and and hopefully it'll be something that keeps going and I can work my way through his bibliography. But anyway, enough of that. 
onto my conversation with Abby. So joining me now is journalist Abby Wilkinson. Um, Abby has the distinction of being one of the few journalists who thought it might be worthwhile trying to understand what Corbyn represented and to take the movement behind him seriously before the election. So that makes her a rather good person to come on. Thank you very much for joining me, Abby. Thank you for having me on. Um, the first thing I wanted to do, I don't want to patronise my audience. I'm sure they're all very smart and knowledgeable, but I do have quite a lot of listeners from overseas who might know who Corbyn is but might not know the kind of intricacies behind his rise and how kind of bizarre it is so for the benefit of those people could you just explain a bit about who Corbyn is and how he came to power what happened in the election and why that was a bit weird and unexpected okay so so Jamie Corbyn is a Labour MP and has been a Labour MP for a long time um he's always been on sort of the left would side if his party, uh, which has really not been in control of the party for, or it wasn't in control of the party for several decades. It was sort of marginalised during the New Labour era. And there was a leadership election in 2015. And basically, he ended up on the ballot because, well, some people nominated him, some MPs nominated him because they supported him, but some nominated him on the basis that it would broaden the debate. And they, they thought it was like right to include a left winger, but it wasn't really where they were coming from. Kind of like a token thing yeah. to that side of the pie. And then it turned out it was, you know, the members are looking for change and they had new people joining the party as well. And he just, he like won massively. He, he beat, there was a number of four candidates, I think. Was there four? No, there's three. For three candidates, I can't remember. Yeah, I might be forgetting someone. Three, I think. But um, yeah, he he um he won massively. So we've had this kind of funny situation where he's he's long had the support of um like the members or the majority of the members, but not really the party establishment and not necessarily a lot of his MPs. So there was a rebellion in 2016 and most of his MPs voted no confidence in him. There was another leadership election, uh, but then the members just voted for Corbyn again. So it, Labour was sort of, it seemed to be in this kind of fairly impossible situation and it was polling really badly. And as you know, I think a lot of voters thought it looked a bit of a mess, but then it sort of made a miraculous recovery during the um there was a you know, there's a general election that Theresa May, the leader of the Conservatives, called because she she thought that they couldn't lose it basically. She thought Labour looked so weak. And then when the election was called and Corbyn and Labour started campaigning, um voters decided they kind of liked what they saw and also didn't like what they were seeing from the Conservatives. So Labour didn't win the election. But it won a lot more votes than was expected. It was polling at maybe 23%. Um, and then it ended up getting, after, you know, a few months later, 40% of the vote. Um, so the Conservatives lost seats, Labour gained seats. And um, the Conservatives lost so many seats that they couldn't actually govern independently. They, they, were, they, they did have majority control of Parliament. And so now they're topped up by this sort of very, quite odd Northern Irish very yeah. religious Protestant party that is very anti-abortion, and they've had to make a deal with this party that they'll um, they'll spend quite a lot of money. They'll give them quite a lot of money, basically, as, as a bribe, effectively. Yeah. But for Northern Ireland, um, which sort of undermines a lot of their arguments about their not being a magic money tree and or not being able to afford things because yeah. what it seems like is there's absolutely money to spend when it suits them. So they look they're in a bit of a bit of a yeah. mess at the moment. And Labour under Corbyn suddenly looks like a very viable force. And you know they're Bucky's favourite to win the next election now. The polls currently has Labour a bit ahead. So it looks mm. like if there was an election called tomorrow, Labour Labour would win. And this was a um, this was obviously a big like you said even though they they didn't technically win this was still a, a big surprise I think it's the it was the biggest swing since 1945 I believe um, in terms of votes and this was the first time Labour had gained votes since 1997 and this was a this was a big surprise this went against uh, what a lot of the media were saying would happen in in the um, rats election which has kind of been this ongoing narrative about how it was going to be a disaster and that Corbyn would not only lose the election but would destroy Labour it was even I think a surprise for a lot of people who supported him who kind of thought that defeat was inevitable well they were defeated but you know I mean that this kind of catastrophic defeat was um, inevitable so getting to actually talk about Corbynism and, and what that is, do you define Corbynism and the project behind him by the like concrete 
policies that he has like things that he's going to do like you know building more homes and, and so on and so forth or do you think it's something broader than that i think it's a, i think it's both at the same time i think if you want to understand why there's so much support for club and you do have to look at the material circumstances um you know it's the fact young people can't afford houses anymore it's the fact that wages are stagnating people wages are actually lower in real terms than they were when the conservatives came to power there's more and more insecure forms of unemployment so though we've had ostensibly have had a had a recovery we've not got the kind of jobs that we had before if you if you mm. get me there's a, there's a lot of um, zero hours contracts a lot of yeah. fake self-employment and all the rest of it so, so I, th- I think, you know, it definitely is about material policies and it is, Corbyn is speaking on these issues. He's talking about higher minimum wage. He's talking about getting rid of zero hours. He's talking about building houses, talking about rent controls recently. Um, but I think it's also just this broader... It's the first time in a while that a politician has come along and actually said, yeah, you, you, things actually can be quite a lot better. Ed Miliband, he was obviously the last Labour leader in the 2015 election. I think he's actually said more recently he would have liked to run on a bolder manifesto. But I think there's been this idea that basically the Tories, it felt like the Tories had won the argument after the financial crash. Uh, which was that it was caused by overspending, which is not true. It wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't caused by government overspending. It was caused by the financial sector. But it felt like yeah. it felt like that one they'd won that argument. So Labour was very boxed in, and and it couldn't argue for higher public spending. And if you can't argue for higher public spending, then as a sort of social democratic party faced with a conservative party that's gutting the welfare state, that's slashing really essential public spending, that's um, loosening and employment law as well there's just do you know pushing a really kind of an economically right-wing agenda and if you feel like you can't push against that because it will make you seem economically not credible then you can't really do anything and for people who are struggling under the conservative government you know there was nothing on offer for them basically it, it, it felt like it felt like there was a, there's particularly after red Miliband lost there's this mood within part of the labor party that we couldn't defend benefits for disabled yeah. people and that, that that kind of thing so i think to see a politician come along and just be like no actually we can do things like it's enough of this it's time for change like this is failing that that sort of got people excited so it's like yeah. Corbyn's style is part of it as well i wanted to maybe get on to talking about Corbyn's style in, in a minute but um just on what you're saying there so that to some degree is a situation that is replicated in slightly different ways but similar ways across Europe where there's been an argument that's been won by the right and also a common kind of common sense and inverted inverted commas way of how to do politics how to win support what things you can and can't do and win an election and what you were saying there about how he came along and said actually you can do things differently this is where i get to talking about uh, corbynism as having like a utopian dimension so so obviously we've got these little things like 10 pound an hour minimum wage which okay if you're talking in the grand scheme of like utopian projects and all the amazing things you can imagine that's not a huge thing but that is a little thing that will make people's lives better which even though it's a small thing i still think of that as utopian like concrete ways of making people's lives better but also do you think that it has this utopian dimension which you've you've touched on there which is this whole concept of oh yes another society is possible where we've been in an age for so long where it's like these are the parameters of how we live it's very nice to talk about all those other things but you we have to be realistic and there's feels like there's been this like breakthrough yeah i mean it does it, it feels like you're allowed to um be a little bit more ambitious because it's, it's the funny thing is very you know the, the manifesto the recent general election manifesto actually it wasn't in the um context of wider european politics it wasn't like madly radical at all it, no, it, it, it was like free, free tuition fees yeah, that was, already exists yeah, in was, some countries right exactly yeah. but you feel like the conversation's been opened up and you've got things like the Labour Alternative Models of Ownership report, which is talking about not just nationalisation, which is very popular in this country, as it turns out, to the dismay of the Tories. If you ask mm. people they want to nationalise things, they, they seem to say yes a lot of the time. But but also stuff like, um, you know, cooperative ownership, um, and just, just ways, ways to try and achieve these kind of things. And it's just after, you know, several decades of this, like, private is best, 
you know, we, we need private providers even of our public services. It, it just feels like the conversation's been opened up. And and talking about, you know, talking about wealth taxes, potentially talking about raising taxes, talking about stuff that could be done to like help us achieve a better society, but did just feel... It felt for so long like the parameters of what you're allowed to discuss were so narrow. So even even if people, even when people aren't making massively radical proposals in this kind of context, it feels radical. And you know, trade unions as well. He's he's very very strongly supportive of trade union organising that's just starting to happen again in the UK in kind of you know low paid industries because like like in many countries our trade unions remain strongest kind of in middle class public sector mm. sort of jobs and they they're not really not really very strong in kind of retail food delivery food service all these kind of things but there's been some union activity there and it it, it does I mean I, I interviewed some um, McDonald's workers who were the first fast food workers to go and strike ever in the UK and they mm. said to me Jeremy Corbyn makes us feel like we're supported and like mm-hmm. we can do yeah. this because people are on our side and you know it's not just us against the entirety of the power and, and, and a few of that said that to me independently so I, I think I think it is this sort of this idea of you know strength in numbers and redistributing power and making things fair and taking on power taking on the establishment and mm. it is is really encouraging to people and I guess in 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 some ways I feel like party politics is playing catch up with like a kind of activisty thing that's been going on basically since the financial crash but I also think it's probably drawing a lot of people into politics who didn't really think it could do anything for them beforehand. Well, yeah, that's, I think that's one of the really big aspects of it. Like before, the, the idea of just like believing that change impossible is possible and that we could create a better world and saying that, you feel silly saying it almost because people didn't, don't believe that. And I mean, me, even me, for example, my I've always been interested in politics to an extent, but like my engagement with electoral politics was basically non-existent. Like, you know, I'd read books about like neoliberalism and stuff, but like I didn't know like any MPs beyond, you know, I knew who the leaders of the party were and then maybe one or two others, you know, didn't know about. I was really cynical about I was just not engaged. I just, it didn't feel like anything could ever happen there. I did, I couldn't see any significant change. And suddenly there's this guy who I'd, I'd never heard of Jeremy Corbyn before. So it just gives you an idea that I didn't know who he was. I suddenly saw him talking about taxing the rich, which is like a really, that's not like a massively radical thing, but in this context, hearing a hearing a politician say that, you know, I just I couldn't believe it. it like I, I hadn't seen haven't seen that for so long and didn't expect talking about as you said talking about nationalising railways and stuff, which has always been I think it's always been popular really, but there was no politician art- articulating that. You know, things like free tuition. I c- I couldn't believe that I'd ever see a prospect of free tuition fees again. That shouldn't be a big thing. But in this context, it felt like it was. And since Jeremy Corbyn came along, I, f- I started to feel like things could happen in electoral politics. And I think there's, uh, that's been, that's not just my personal experience. We, we, well, we know from the fact that um, a lot of people who don't usually vote um, participate in the election. I believe I'm right in saying it had a higher turnout than you normally get. You've turned out. I think it was, hov- it was around 60%, which is maybe a little bit lower. I mean, I've, I've seen different numbers reported, but kind of high 50s. Mm. And it's been low 40s before. It, right. you've turned out it, it's weird because people kind of talk about it as if it's always been like that it actually was in the kind of mid 90s when I think I can't remember if it was 92 I think it dropped a bit in 92 and then dropped more in 97 okay. and it's pretty pretty much been down since there so it's not that young people have always been disengaged from politics and I mean we can theorise about why that is but my own personal theory is just because for basically the period of you know from Blair onwards there was there did seem to be such broad consensus between yeah. all three major parties um if the Lib Dems still count as a major party <laughs> <laughs> but it's not the but um yeah so it, it felt like you know it just felt like this unmovable sort of like yeah like this is the system this is how it works you're never going to take it on from within it was a real challenge to like possibility if you see what i mean and it feels like since then these things that have been impossible are now open for debate and people are talking about changes to society in a a way they weren't before and again i think that's a utopian act um opening up territory of possibility if that makes sense yeah no 
completely. I, I think that's what it is. Um, I think it goes well beyond what was in the comic manifesto. Although I, I, I do think when you start talking about these things, I mean, even stuff like say like a, a maximum wage cap, like you like you your CEO can't earn more than twenty times. You, mm. you, um, that's that's one of those things that got mocked, but or like kind of mainstream political journalists just assumed that it would you know people would think it was ridiculous or it. And it turns out it had majority public support. Or what was the other one? That, I mean, um, it's not surprising, really, is it? Because most of us aren't like CEOs, <laughs> right? Exactly. But that's that's what's always been quite absurd about this. When you really think about, that's why it was so depressing. Like the idea that things that people like you and me probably were like, well, this should be popular, but then you yeah. just get told, no, you can't possibly, like, you can't possibly say this to people. They they won't vote for it. And it's just like, why vote? <laughs> if you feel like you know this does represent the interests of the majority but I, I think the other thing as well is that this election's shown is that the um, newspapers don't have as much power mm. as they think they thought they did or, or also as much power as maybe they used to because there's some there's some research come out recently that says that um if people got their news from print media they were more likely to vote conservative and if they got their news online they're more likely to vote labor but this holds even after you control for age so it's not just that young okay. people were obviously more likely to get their news online and more likely to vote Labour. It's also there are ways to bypass <clears throat> information gatekeepers now. Do you potentially change political possibilities? Yeah, so d- just just quickly for, for, for people who don't know, um, from basically the day that Corbyn was elected leader of the party, there was massive attacks on him from pretty much uh, every... Uh, media outlet it, it, especially obviously this in the lead up to the election that was really strong kind of an unprecedented level of vitriol towards him in the press and even publications that you might think might be more sympathetic to him like the guardian i won't ask you to say think about the guardian <laughs> that you you don't write for them sometimes but i was personally really shocked because the the guardian occurs they didn't attack him in the same way as like daily mail and, and stuff which was just more bad faith and um, outright falsehoods but I was really surprised of the the kind of um, the um, the amount that they put into their own attacks on him and it was really surprising to me um, I think kind of exposed them in some ways and kind of I, I know that they wouldn't necessarily agree with always Corbyn's policies but they would seem to represent some of the values that people uh, in that kind of um, political faction would represent but it seemed that they don't want to follow you on those on those values. That was really surprising to me. Do you think that we've reached something of a tipping point now of media power? Because, as you said, it didn't really have an effect, or perhaps even had the the opposite effect that, that they intended. And I think a lot of people were surprised that it didn't have. I thought that their attacks would be effective, particularly when we had the. Um, we had terrorist attacks um, shortly before the election and there was a big campaign in the media to try and paint Corbyn as a terrorist sympathiser, which I thought would uh, be really uh, have a really bad effect on his um, electoral performance, but it didn't seem to. So like, have we reached the tipping point where where um, like social media and stuff is more important? I, I, I think maybe some of the attacks have been so sort of over the top that I wonder if it's just stopped it's stopped working like anyone who's convinced is already convinced and maybe a lot of people are just tuning it out like I think people do think that you know the attacks have been ridiculous I I think do you think um sorry to interrupt you but just to link back to something you said earlier do you think that it might have something to do with like Corbyn's style and his kind of authenticity that makes him like immune to the kind of attacks they're trying to. I think it's. I think it's like when the onslaught is so intense, and it's like this man is evil, but at the same time he's like a dang- dangerous because he's a pacifist, and a lot of it contradicts each other, and and then mm. it's just all just like it's all a bit over the top, and then people see him on TV, and they're like, he seems quite nice and reasonable, and I think what he yeah. says makes sense. Then the picture of him they were trying to create didn't fit with how he came across at all and I, I actually think I actually think his sort of ability to perform under media pressure has improved over the past two years as, as you'd expect he's he's like you know he's been a politician for decades but he's been a backbencher not really that in the public eye a lot more free to just do his own thing and then suddenly he was thrust into like you know he became the leader like I think even he didn't expect it when he stood in the contest, to be honest, as far as I can tell. Um, he was understaffed. He didn't really 
have the training for it. So I, I think he, uh, early on, he, he wasn't very good at, you know, dealing with very hostile journalism, people trying to catch him out. And his his team, they didn't, they didn't have enough staff to respond to fake stories fast enough and put them down and put quotes out. And But I think, you know, over the past couple of years, they've really, really got better at the practical side of things. And because I, th- I think a, a Labour leader is always going to face... Like, you know, most media, most print media in the UK is conservative supporting and that's because mm-hmm. largely because of ownership. Like it's a big factor. Yeah. Um like like our media skews more right wing than the population does, for yeah. example. But um, you know, I think Corbyn had it particularly bad attack. Part partly just because he's a particular threat to their interests, I get I guess, but also because from the point of view of a political journalist he didn't play the game right and he wasn't was it wasn't just about whether he's left or right wing although that was a part of it it was like insider versus outsider and they just right. sort of assumed he'd be gone soon so like i mean they i mean for example andrea Led- ledson who was like a tory leadership candidate she's mm. um i mean i think she's like a bad politi- politician but I, I think she got treated differently to some of the other candidates because she was seen as sort of a joke right okay journalists would like maybe not check their stories as carefully before they put them out about her Mm. and stuff like that so i think that's a factor and there was also the issue that um a lot of labor mps who were to the right of the party the kind of centrist they wanted him gone as well so they were going to newspapers and briefing against him um and again this is something that can always happen in a party people work against each other but it was much more much more kind of intense thing but it sort of feels like now he's gone through that sort of baptism of fire it sort of feels like what else have they got to throw at him you know Mm. okay um do you think that the rise of of corbyn has is emblematic of a utopian moment in politics so what i mean by that is so i've made the argument elsewhere that trump and brexit and corbyn are in a way, all a symptom of the same phenomenon, which is that there's a desire for change, a rejection of the way things are now. Trump's vision isn't utopian to me. Uh, the Brexit campaign's vision is not utopian to me. But I think all of these things capture a desire for change, which you could call utopian in the sense of it's like the impossible becoming real. So do you do you think that's fair? Do you think that we're in like a utopian moment? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I would use the word utopian, but so, the, we're certainly in a period where people want change. So I, yeah, like I think we're in a period when people have reached, a lot of people have reached the end of their tether of being told that the experts say it's impossible. You know, the experts say this is how it has to be. Like we're formally a democracy, but really the options are quite limited. And I think people are going, no, screw that. <laughs> like, yeah. and it's, it's interesting to think about, to think about why, because obviously when we're, Obviously, when we're talking about Corbyn, for example, this is very much a, a young people-led movement, and we can talk about it's not not exclusively, but but you know disproportionately, and we can talk about the material reasons why young people do want change and feel like they've got less to lose because they don't feel like the current system is working for them. Whereas pensioners who own their own homes, which are kind of become you know making money for them just by existing as the housing bubble grows and who have had their benefits somewhat protected and and, and all the rest of it are are less desiring of change because they feel like they've got something to lose. And the Trump Trump thing's interesting because the Trump, you know, he obviously lost a popular vote and obviously because he's a Republican, his voters were richer on average than Clinton's voters. But the swing, the swing voters weren't. So the people, the people who switched from Democrat to Republican were put lower income people, and the people who switched from Republican to Democrat, sort of higher income people. But I, I, I guess, I guess there was a, rebe- a true rebellion within the Republican Party, if you get me, like in the primaries. It's really strange sort of moment isn't it like it's hopeful in a way because like as you said before there's this there's this sense that nothing could could happen but it also feels quite dangerous when you get people like trump emerging who he's kind of a a false avatar of of change in some ways like in terms of taking on vested interests that he claims i mean he's clearly not going to do that but 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 i think hillary was such a a symbol of the state i mean it's not just about trump because it's also bernie sanders wasn't it yeah sure the idea of him getting as close as he did to to getting the democrat nomination is 
kind of crazy. Um, again, a very, ma- ma- you know, fairly moderate social democrat. Not even, he wouldn't even be that super left in the UK. But like, in, 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 American, in American context, he, he was, you know, he was proposing something quite radical, even, you know, single payer healthcare, universal health healthcare. But it's, also he had the sort of, the same style of Corbyn, the kind of the idea of like taking on elites, taking on Wall Street, taxing people, rich people will you know can afford to pay more to benefit all of us and all the rest of it. And I think there is this mood that there is this feeling amongst I think growing numbers of people that things are broken and it's time for radical change. And, and mm. it's I guess it's just manifesting in pretty different ways. It's, it's yeah. difficult. I suppose it's difficult with Brexit because I think people voted Brexit for different reasons and it's actually kind of quite a funny coalition of of different groups like you've you've got your jacob reese mugs sorts and you have got people like i met some ukip types up in barnsley who absolutely believe that the reason they're unemployed is because of free movement right okay you also get people who for her it was like just a way to kick like the political establishment i mean it's all getting oh this is round as well we've got the political center that has been you know, defined what we've li- how we've lived for the last few decades is very much anti-utopian in that sense of things can't change. And I think there's probably I think there's a a lesson to be learned here in terms of like the term realism. Clearly, realistic is an ideological term, and I think we have to be very suspicious of taking anyone advice from anyone who's making appeals to being realistic. And it's, it's kind of funny now how like. <laughs> people in on the center are kind of starting to look a bit crazy with the stuff they're talking about yeah i do think the the what's realistic argument it just i i mean I've, I've seen people like people have been trying to claim this mantle of radical center and be like you know we represent change as well we, we want to shake things off like i you know i think we've almost sort of won the argument that things need to change you know most politicians want to adopt that posture at least superficially i was at the progress rally at labor conference which is sort of a moderate centrist group within the labor party and their thing was they kept on saying you know we're the real radicals but but that's sort of encouraging in a way because it says people people seem politically beneficial to position themselves that way there's a public consensus for change in a very in a very loose way like I, i don't know about you but it, it does feel like it feels like party politics is catching up. But I know after the financial crash, when people, when there still wasn't a public consensus that, you know, when there seemed to be an austerity consensus, basically. Mm. And it, I was just like, if we, could, if not now, then like, when are people going to rise up? You know what I mean? And it did feel, it did feel like, it did feel, oh, after after the 2015 election, it's like, you know, austerity, it's, it's some, some of the cuts are hitting fairly narrowly, but, it, you know, if we can't win an election now, then what the hell? Like, why, why are you people voting for the Conservatives? Yeah. But I think it does feel like everything's become so much more possible, which is terrifying in a way, because it means that we can mess up. Yeah, but it's nice to see that the sort of neoliberal centre basically has no, has no ideas anymore. I mean, it feels like they've completely lost their legitimacy. They've got no ideas for how to win people back, as far as I can see. Well, yeah, you can't. They've been very, very complacent. I mean, you know, when you have, when you have like a post-class recovery that... You know, when the money keeps on being funneled upwards, when when rich people benefit and get richer and richer and ordinary people's um, living standards stagnate or get worse and their work gets more insecure and their public services get cut. How, how are you going to convince people that that's a system worth defending? I do you think specifically an issue with young people because, you, you know, you, I, I, it's, it's the whole there's a whole conservative thing of... Um, you know, a property owning democracy. And yeah. if you want to encourage people to vote conservative, the best way to do that is for them to own houses so they feel like they've got like an investment in the capitalist system. And I think yeah. it's always something, always somewhat of a con. But when when young people don't even have that, and they don't even have a job that they, they know they'll be able, you know, they f- can feel confident they'll have in a few months. Or sometimes they don't even have a job they feel confident they'll have tomorrow. Like if, if you're on a zero hours contract, yeah. or you're like, technically self-employed but basically not like you're, you're doing delivery driving or something or you're unemployed you've got or you've just finished studying and um, with the hope of getting work and you're not being able to find a job that matches your skills and you're like well 
what have I got to lose? Like, what are you telling me I should want to conserve? Yeah, and they, they lack that fear that older people have who, like you say, may not like what the conservatives are doing, but like have a mortgage and they're a bit worse. Like young people, they don't really have anything. <laughs> like they've got no money in their bank accounts. They don't have a, they don't have a proper job. So like they don't have a fear of change. That and they keep them coming out with stuff that's appealing. Like like um, John McDonald's thing on capping the amount of credit card interest that can accrue. I know that would benefit lots of people. I know potentially because mm. um, you know student debt one thing but uh, the kind of debt that you don't only pay back when you own a certain amount of money and does gather interest much more rapidly kind of negatively affects a lot of people's lives like payday loans credit cards that sort of thing and the labor just keeps on coming out with policies that people people see them like that would make my life better mm. and the conservatives seem unable to do that they just have nothing and even like even kind of corbyn's critics within the labor party don't really seem to have much yeah. Yeah, sure. Talking of them, so you, you said you've been to uh, Labour Party conference. So obviously, part of the movement behind Corbyn has been a grassroots thing. So people who again, for people who don't know, there's an organisation called Momentum, which is kind of runs parallel to the Labour Party, which is a grassroots organisation which has been really, really influential in getting new members into Labour and winning support for Labour. They were really successful with like getting videos and, and stuff shared and lead up to the election. But yeah, it's been an influx of membership. Now there's in within the actual Labour Party the kind of institutional power still a lot of it is held by the right i understand that they they're trying to um redress that balance a bit and move power towards the membership uh, is there any sense from labor conference like how successful they've been in that or what they're doing about that so i mean successful in in terms of for the past couple of years you've had some parts of labor and, and parts of the media attacks momentum as this sort of fringe hard left infiltrators when in actual fact when you you go you're going to talk to these people with ordinary people my mum's a momentum member actually and i i think that they've they've done enormous things for labor i mean you, you talk about the videos i think i think one of the really cool things about momentum and about the kind of influx of young members is that people do ha- often have these kind of skills that they're prepared to volunteer for free i, I guess it makes sense right like if you're a young creative you, it makes sense that you're gonna support labor because you've probably not got a very stable income yeah <laughs> I mean, you but, but so so there's you know they've they've, they've got people building apps like coding to help to help with uh, canvassing so you, you can take data on your phone off photos and they, they've got these filmmakers making these adverts on a shoestring and they managed to reach millions of people on social media media despite spending very very little money um, promoting them and then you've got the conservatives chucking literally millions of pounds at um, the same sort of things and it doesn't have the same effect because people aren't choosing to share them organically. Yeah, momentum. Momentum did such good work during the um, during the election. They sort of organised carpools um, to, to get you know to transport people to marginal seats. So you'd have an army of volunteers ready to knock on the doors um, and convince and convince people to vote Labour, convince people to come out. And the Conservatives just can't match that. I think I, I've seen um, information from Tory conference today. They, the average age of their members is seventy one. Oh wow! And they've now they've now got less members than the Lib Dems. Oh okay. <laughs> yeah, it's really encouraging because basically it, it, it makes me feel hopeful because it's something that you can't match with money yeah like you know they, they, they're they always going to have more money than labor probably going to have more money than labor like we do have the trade unions which is helpful but they you know like big business will chuck money at the conservatives and you know they've, they've got like most of the press barons on the side and the rest of it but what they haven't got is an army of enthusiastic people who will go and knock on doors and talk about why they actually do support Labour and, and really mean it, or who will post on their own social media accounts about their personal reading reasons for voting Labour, uh, which is far more likely to convince someone. Mm. You know, if you see a load of your friends saying it, then then some random conservative video, or who will share share their videos. So yeah, I think you know the idea that momentum's not a mainstream part of the Labour Party is just. It, it, it doesn't make sense anymore. Like ma- most of the conference delegates as well this year were on, were on the left of the party. So the, the way the party's structured is there's um in each constituency there's like a local party organisation and then the the members of that vote for delegates that get sent to the conference and then they vote on things 
like for the national party like rule changes or other issues and and basically last year though they had a lot of new left-wing members it wasn't really reflected at conference because um they they didn't really know how to navigate the party whereas this year it it wasn't like that at all so there's there's like a real effort to democratize the party and and make it more of like a one member one vote sort of a situation Mm. it's it's, it's working like I think you know after the election result as well I I think they won the moral argument because but basically like the main argument from the centre was that Corbyn's not electable and you know he might be promising nice things it might sound nice but it's not achievable and people won't support it yeah but now 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 the election result now 40 percent of the vote that's sort of been blown out of the water so there's no reason for people just not to support the policies and the kind of movement that they want to support because they like the sound of it. So mm. I think I think most most of his critics within the party have piped down. There's there's a there's a few exceptions. Chris Leslie um, mm-hmm. is a very bitter MP. <laughs> I think he 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 was like shadow chancellor, and I, I, basically he was he thought he was going to be the next chancellor, and he would, right. and and he's just a bit angry. <laughs> about that but like largely speaking I, I think you know the moral argument and a lot of the kind of practical things to do with like selection delegates and, and the rest of it like the, the left basically is in control of the party now okay that's good so how ambitious do you think Corbyn and the left more broadly should be so so for example like his policies on like or what he said in terms of like immigration and Brexit is areas where he's being criticized by some people on the left um i kind of still catching myself sometimes thinking you know as much as i'd I'd like to see a more uh open and like liberal immigration policy i do sometimes think oh yeah it's difficult you know difficult to win support for that and then i remember that all the stuff that i thought was impossible i was completely proved wrong so do you think i mean how ambitious do you think we could be and do you think we need to catch ourselves when we're thinking about what's not possible yeah, I mean, I th- I think that's I think that I think it's reasonable criticism. I I do I I mean I mean I do I do think by taking the stance he did on Brexit, it neutralised the issue during the general election, and mm. um, who knows how it would have gone if that had been a good, the possible Tory attack line. Basically, by taking the stance I did, Labour made it not an issue. I do think Corbyn needs to be defending defending the rights of EU migrants and migrants generally. I actually don't disagree with his. Um, I, th- I think a lot of the stuff Labour's saying about, for example, you know, insisting that posted workers have the same employment rights mm-hmm. as as UK workers, which they they currently don't necessarily get given, it is the right thing to be saying. I, I mean, this is a very, <laughs> very sort of um, heated argument, and you need to be really careful. You don't kind of slip into blaming migrant workers themselves or suggesting that free movement does, um, you know, lose. British people jobs on the whole because it doesn't but in in industries like construction there is a very specific issue of posted workers being brought across just to do jobs and they don't really live here like beyond doing that job they're not they're not having the same employment rights and being given the same wages and stuff as UK workers would be given and this is a thing that happens and you know the unions have been campaigning on the issue on behalf of migrant workers as well as well as UK national workers for a while so I don't I think and, and I do think practically talking about these sorts of issues shows that you're taking the issue of wages seriously but it's difficult to you don't want to you don't want to give ground to the argument that basically as long as you have free movement that's going to be a problem in terms of wages and jobs because it's not going to be you can have yeah. you can have free movement and you can have well enforced employment rights and you can have collective bargaining and unions setting wage rates through negotiations with employers and if you have that then this undercutting issue which is less of an issue far less of an issue than UKIP and people would have you believe but not an entirely imaginary issue mm. you, you you can address that without um you know getting rid of ground movement. to the right yeah but I, I do understand that when you know, this is a line that's been pushed so long. People feel like even talking about that at all is ceding ground to the far right. It's a difficult one because I feel like if you don't yeah. say anything, then you're. I don't know, man. But I, I, I mean, I'd, I'd like to. I, I feel like Labour are slowly softening their kind of Brexit position yeah. in a kind of very 
I mean, it's funny for all the talk about, you know, Corbyn's not prepared to compromise or he's not a pragmatic politician on this issue specifically. He's being definitely, you know, playing politics. Yeah, sure. But I I mean, I don't though I think that it's probably, it is right for people to be pushing on that. Part of me, it's difficult. I I think he could be leading the conversation a a little bit more. My hope is, you know, if you can, it's about, I feel like a lot of it is about identifying the actual problem so if you can like no it's not because of immigration that you know there's not enough houses being built so you can't get a council house or you can't find an affordable even private rental place or you know it's not because of immigrants that your public services are overstretched in fact precisely the opposite our public services rely on migrant labor a lot of the time particularly the nhs so i feel like if you can talk about the actual problems maybe you know that's that's the way to try and match the stuff like no it's not the fault of immigration like the problems you identify are real you'll be lied to about mm. who's causing them. i think those conversations are kind of starting to happen like as, as we've already said there's loads of stuff that was impossible to debate for which is now so hopefully that's happening so uh often people tr- try to suggest that corbyn like is representing like the, like a return to a past politics do you think that's true in any sense and necessarily a bad thing that that he kind of represents like politics of the past this idea that he's reviving like an old i think that argument rests on the idea that we've reached we'd reached the end of history and everyone had agreed that neoliberalism was the best possible system and um, you know that's the end of that which is just nonsense like if you if you're saying that public ownership and people, you know, council housing, uh, and all these things that were actually quite good are, are out, you know, are outdated ideas or old-fashioned ideas. And sure, but there's a, there's a lot in in the kind of like Corbyn project and the kind of policy they're developing. That's very new. They're, they're they're looking at how to deal with platform capitalism. You know, mm. Uber, Amazon, um, and these sort of monopolies. They're looking at new ways to create cooperatives. They're looking at. Um, energy stuff as well I think green they, they, they have a better climate offering that they're looking at solving the problems of today and you know of course ultimately like there are like broad finite broad economic models right you, you know you can have things privately owned you can have things publicly owned or you can have things cooperatively owned and for sure like he's try, we're trying to move away from the private sector dominating everything which is more like it was in the 70s but you know it's it's the solution to the problem now like carrying on as things are isn't the solution to the current situation kind of like free market capitalism has created problems or or like we had stronger trade unions and people had yeah Yeah, if you if uh, affordable housing is old-fashioned then fine (laughs) i'll have old-fashioned yeah there were things that were good in the past and there are things that were bad let's keep the things that are good from the recent history i think as you suggested as well it's not it's not just rolling back because like we have new the problems we have today are different and there may be kind of broad ideological ideas but like the different solutions that are being applied as different problems and different concepts well, just, you know we're, we're talking about automation and what that might mean and, mm, and yeah. you know and even the possible the possibility of a universal basic income which I, I'm, I'm somewhat on, on the fence about but the idea that these aren't the ideas that these are just old-fashioned ideas being rehashed it's just not it's just no, not, it's yeah. just not true like and the, the idea that it's, it's an argument that rests on the premise that any movement away from neoliberalism free market capitalism is bad and i think making that kind of argument post 2008 is a bit questionable yeah okay um one one final question do you have any concern that the resurgence of the left that we've seen in the uk and the movement behind corbyn is too tied up in corbyn himself like if everything was to go horribly wrong with him for like some reason whatever that would be like do you think this is a movement that would endure or do you think that would be like a big blow you know he is very much the figurehead but i i, I think i i think he would endure i i think there's support for other figures within labor but i think beyond that there's support for the ideas mm. it's difficult to it's difficult to know he he is very very much the figurehead of what's going on but i, I don't i don't think that say he you know God forbid something happened to him and then, you know, there needed to be a new leader earlier than planned, that all the people who support him would just give up on the things he represents. So I think I think it is ultimately 
it, it can I think to, to people who don't aren't really on board it can look a little bit personality cultish but it's not mm. actually about you know him so much as what he represents which is the possibility of change the possibility of something better like the promise things actually can get better you, you actually can earn enough to live on you actually do have the right to affordable housing like society can get better we can fix these problems we don't just have to accept this kind of gradual managed decline that the conservatives have been telling us we have to put up with yeah i think i think can sustain beyond him but i also think there are reasons to be thinking about how to strengthen and coordinate even now yeah i suppose the the hope the hope that i'd have on that is it has started as like a grassroots thing rather than something that's been imposed from above which i think gives it a stronger base and also I suppose the other positive in that regard is with with the polls, I seem to remember that it was when they released the manifesto, it was like one of the massive turning points, which, as you say, is about, that's the ideas. And that was the thing that seemed to swing support towards him. So I think that's a positive in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time, Abby. Cheers for having me up. So that's the end of my conversation with Abby. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you very much to Abby for coming on. Uh, you should go and follow her on Twitter uh, at Abby Wilkes. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, if you could take a moment to give me a rating or a review on iTunes, whatever you use to listen to this, that would be hugely appreciated and would be a massive help. Um, I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash utopian horizons should you feel able and compelled to support the podcast financially. For anyone who don't know, this is a thing where you can give like a certain amount of money, like however much you like a month to support the podcast. It's a thing you can cancel at any time. So if you just want to do like a one-off donation type thing, then you can do that. As I mentioned before, all I was really trying to do in this early stage is cover the hosting costs of the podcast, which is nine euros a month. So it's not very much just to, you know, make the podcast not cost me money, which would be good. But it's something that, you know, would be good to grow. And, um, you know, obviously a lot of Patreons, they do particular rewards and stuff for different uh, pay levels. So if you've got ideas of stuff that you think would work or you would want from uh, a Patreon subscription then uh email me utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com tweet me at utopianhorizons and let me know and yeah i'm open to implementing those ideas and and coming up with ways of, of making it better if you've got any feedback uh on the episode any questions any points you'd like to raise that i could address you know in the next one or whatever again tweet me at utopianhorizons on twitter email me utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com it would be great to hear from you hear what you think in terms of new episodes coming i've got a couple of things arranged so they'll hopefully be coming fairly soon as i mentioned i'm going to be trying trying the philip k dick thing as well so time out of joint will be will be the next one i need to get some more film episodes up as well that's something i keep saying i want to do and i do want to do that and i am going to try and do that um finding it hard to sort of think of people that would be good to have on or find people because i don't really know film that well um sean mctiernan if you're listening i think he listens to this podcast i don't know if he listens to every episode um he came on for uh episode we did on kamikaze 89 which was uh really good so check that out um if you're listening you know film maybe you know some people that would be good for me to have on so yeah please let me know if you can think of someone that might be good to have on for this sean does a really good podcast called uh, all units which is uh, anatomy of the thriller which i recommend you checking out yeah, so that's it. I've got an interview or two arranged. There'll be the Philip K. Dick stuff coming and I will try and get some more film stuff soon. Thanks for listening.